Let's open our Bibles to Acts chapter five. We're gonna be looking at verses 33 through 42. 33 through 42. We're still in the same basic scene that, uh, that Pastor Jimmy was unpacking for us last week. And so we're gonna be picking up there. I'll give it a little bit of context and we'll work our way through it. But while you're turning there, I want you to consider whether or not you can remember a time when you've been publicly shamed, ostracized, dishonored, right? Can you remember a time when someone marked you publicly in such a way so that everyone else knew that you were some kind of a failure. Now that's most of my youth, so I have a lot to draw on, but one, one moment in particular, it wasn't a moment, it was a year, but uh, one, one season was fifth grade because I had the worst fifth grade teacher ever, Mr. Johnson. Uh, Mr. Johnson was, uh, was terrible, he was really, he was not, he called us stupid and uh, called us names, really weird. Anyways, his classroom was arranged uh, from smartest to dumbest, like, that's how it worked, right, in his mind. So it was uh, class, the, the desks at the top, desks at the top left, A's, bottom right, F's. So it was left to right, descending grade order. So you got placed where you were. So people would move, you know, people that weren't steady in their grade. I was very steady in my grade. I, ne I never moved. I was always in bottom right corner, F. Otherwise people were moving around. And it was clearly a way to, to, to shame people and or reward people. And I think like maybe you'd go like, well, you know what, maybe he's just trying to motivate you, misguided, wrong. Hopefully you think that's wrong because it's not cool. Um, but maybe you, maybe you think like, well, give him the benefit of the doubt. Maybe he was just, maybe he thought that that would help. Maybe he's just old school. No, truth is he was just a jerk. That's what the truth is. Um, but I remember like that did not motivate me. That did not motivate me to try. That, did, that, that motivated me to kick back and not care. For other people, like, because I didn't care. Other people, they would be so embarrassed, they would just freeze up. And this is something that shame does. It's something that, that being dishonored does. People do it sometimes. They will publicly shame you or expose you to dishonor in order to get you to change. That happens. But oftentimes, what happens is, is we wind up freezing. We're embarrassed. We do nothing. Dishonor can be greatly discouraging, but... There is a dishonor that does not discourage. There is a dishonor that for us can be even an honor. And here's what I want us to see. So I'm gonna give you the summary of, of today's message now before we even get into the passage because I want you to hold on to it the whole way through. The Christian life embraces the dishonor that comes with following Jesus. The Christian life actually embraces the dishonor, the public ridicule and shame that comes with following Jesus. So we have some context right away in verse 33. We're gonna spend some time in verses 39 through 40 talking about this worldly wisdom that the church uh, experiences or benefits from. Uh, but then I want us to talk about the honor of dishonor and that's where we're really gonna try to land this thing. So first context in verse 33, it says, this is uh, Acts chapter five. 533 says, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. So if you're turning on the TV in the middle of the show and that's what's happening, you're like, 
Who's them? Who's getting killed? What's going on? So brief recap. The apostles were out there healing people of diseases and they were preaching the gospel. They are arrested and sent into prison. But guess what? Angel shows up. Angel shows up, miraculous. Angel shows up, sets them free. They get out of there. They go back into the temple where all the Jews gather and they start to do it all over again. They don't care. Then they're brought back in for questioning by the authorities and the temple police. And they're like, man, you, you, you can't do that. We, we told you you can't do that. That's why you were in jail. And their response is like, look, we have, uh, we have two options here. Uh, we can obey you or we obey God. And we're no dummies. We're not disobeying God. We love the Lord. We're going to do what he's called us to do. He's called us to bear witness to the resurrection of Jesus. So even in that moment, they preached the gospel again right to their face and said, we're going to obey God and not you. That's the basic context. Jimmy talked a lot about the fear of man and how it can paralyze us and the fear of the Lord and how that empowers us. Well, members of the Sanhedrin hearing all of this and watching their, their hubris, the arrogance of this small gaggle of weak, heretical, troublesome meddlers, right? That's how they viewed these, these apostles. Like, how dare you defy us? And they want them dead. They want them killed. So that is the context. So, in this context, a man stands up and offers some worldly wisdom. This is not bad, right? It's worldly wisdom, it's common grace. He's, he's, he's being smart about this. So this guy Gamaliel stands up in verse 34 and listen to what he says. Well, before that, it says, a Pharisee uh, in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the man outside for a little while. So Gamaliel stands up and says, all right, time out. I know there's a lot of talk about killing these guys. Uh, guys, uh, apostles, uh, will you guys just go out there and wait, just chill. We've got to have a family meeting. We're going to have a little discussion. So Gamaliel uh, says, let's do this. Of course, everybody responds positively. Okay, we can do this. And the reason is because Gamaliel is highly respected. People respect him. They admire him because Gamaliel is like super rabbi, sort of. He's very smart. He's very well known. He's, he's not just highly educated. He's winsome. He's influential. Uh, he tends to, he knows the law very, very well. He established a school for training Pharisees. That's what he did. It's what he does. So he is a leader among leaders. Also, he's relatively easy. And I don't, I don't mean that in, in any uh, weak sense. I just mean that he tended to be a little softer in his approach than some of the other Pharisees. So, so Gamaliel, this famous rabbi who established a school, a leader in the Sanhedrin, right? The Sanhedrin, the 70 people who formed the, the high court uh, of the temple and of the Jews. He's a leader there. So he's really well known. So they're going to listen to him when he says, everybody, Let's be quiet for a second. Settle down. We got to have a talk. You may know what he's most famous for. If you've been reading your Bible a lot or if you've been in church for a while. Because Gamaliel is actually most famous for one of his students. One of his brightest students, Saul. Saul of Tarsus, whose Roman name is Paul, whom we know as Paul the Apostle. Paul studied under Gamaliel. So we'll get to Paul later in the book of Acts. But for now, it's Gamaliel, Peter, the Sanhedrin, the apostles, here we are so far. So Gamaliel basically drops some common sense wisdom on the crowd that wants to kill the church, right? And wants, to, wants to, to stomp out these apostles. So look at what he says in verses 39 
35 through, uh, through 39. And he said to the men of Israel, take care about what to do with these men. For before these days, Theodius rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. He's trying to draw an analogy to get people to calm down and not panic. He's saying, you're all upset because Jesus rose up. Jesus of Nazareth rose up. We have some people following him, and you're afraid that this is going to get out of hand but let's look back and see what's happened previously. Theodos was a prophet of some kind, considered himself a prophet. And he had a following, a good following, 400 people. It's a pretty good following. So he's got 400 people following him. They're causing trouble. Well, Theodos is killed. And what happens to the movement? It comes to an end. They disperse. Got no more juice. It's over. So you see his point, like, don't worry about Jesus. He's dead. That's what he said. He's like, why? Jesus, they're just rambling around right now. Don't worry about it. It'll, it'll quiet. Don't overreact. Then he talks about Judas, not Judas Iscariot. This is a different Judas, Judas the Galilean. He was an insurgent, really upset about the Roman occupation of the land of Israel, really upset about taxes, didn't want to be paying taxes to Rome. And, uh, and so he was created really a movement of what we call zealots that wanted to overthrow the Roman oppression. And uh, well, as we read, he was killed and his followers uh, weakened, right? They scattered. And actually at this point, the zealots are still around. They're just at this point, not a great threat. So Gamaliel's like, don't trip, don't freak out. Just let's leave them alone. Because look at what he says in verse 38 specifically. This is where you see, oh, there's some wisdom here. In his ignorance, he's still trying to exercise some wisdom that's helpful. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found to be opposing God. Look at Gamaliel. He's smart, right? Gamaliel is way smarter than I am for sure. I'm not trying to make fun of him. I'm not suggesting he's dumb. But he doesn't, he's not someone whose mind has been enlightened by the Holy Spirit. He's not a convert. He's not a follower of Jesus. But he has been exposed to the law of God, the writings, the prophets. He knows it all very well. And so he's, a, he's, he's gathered wisdom and he's, he's looking at this and he's thinking like, look, I, if, if this is of God, then we do not want to go against it. This would be a bad move. So he seems to be a little open, right? It's a little open to what's going on. So he says, like, let's not. It, it'll probably die out. It'll just, if, if there's nothing to it, don't worry. And if there is something to it, we don't want to be on the wrong side. So that's this common wisdom, common grace that is extended. He's basically saying, do not kill them. Do not take their lives let them go. And what do we read? It says, they took his advice. Oh, this is great. They're not going to kill them. And when they called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. That's the worldly wisdom continuing. Not always so good, not always so sharp, not always so fair. Sometimes worldly wisdom gets it right, sometimes it doesn't. The people listen, no death, we won't kill them, this is fine. Okay, fine, they, they get a pass, we'll see what happens. But we're not done with them. 
because we still have to make a point. We still want this to stop. So we're going to beat them and threaten them and charge them. Do not do this again. Now, I don't know about you, but when you read like, oh, he, they were beat. And this doesn't sound so bad. I could take a beating. You ever been beat up? It's not even that long. I, you just you kind of deal with it and then you walk around, you walk it off, you know. Put some frozen peas on your eye. This is a flogging. This is being whipped. This is a kind of torture. And the idea is not merely like, okay, we're going to punish you. We're going to spank you so that you feel pain. Now you've been punished. It wasn't just punitive. It was a warning. It was a dishonoring. It was a shaming. People that were flogged like this were flogged in such a way that their wounds would be visible. They would be recognized by the people in the community, marking them out as criminals, untrustworthy. Oh, you want to go out and you want to tell everybody about Jesus? We're going to give you some stripes and everybody's going to know that you're criminals, you've been convicted, you've been tried, and that you've been warned. Good luck with your mission, welcoming people into the happy, positive life of following Jesus where God's wonderful plan is about to unfold for you. Imagine the complexity of being a, an apostle and you want to go out there and you want to talk to people about, about sin and grace about our deserved condemnation, but God's love and forgiveness. And you want to talk to them about a savior who suffered and was beaten and crucified and died for sinners so that we wouldn't have to. But look at them. They're a pulp. So the message is, oh yes, listen, I can offer you through Jesus Christ peace with God, but it comes with a war against the world that is going to involve a lot of dishonor and disgrace. Yeah, they were, uh, they were set free after they were dishonored. But 41, verse 41 shows us the honor of dishonor here. Right? Dishonor and public shame and all of that, that's a lot. That's heavy. That's, that can be crippling. That can ruin your life. But for the Christian, ah, the Christian life embraces the dishonor. We embrace the dishonor that comes from following Jesus. Look at verse 41. This is my favorite verse in this chapter. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name, the name of Jesus. They left rejoicing. Why are they happy? Are they happy because they're free? Well, no, they're probably a little happy because they're free, but that's not why they're rejoicing. Are they happy because they have their lives? Well, probably are, right? Most of us want to keep our lives. Good times, bad times still. Living's usually better than dying. But that's not why they're rejoicing. They're rejoicing because they suffered dishonor for the name of Jesus, which sounds crazy. Who rejoices in being dishonored? It says they rejoiced. It was an honor to be dishonored for the name of Jesus. They were whipped and flogged, left with visible marks, marks of shame and conviction. And they sang. They praised God. They prayed together. They counted it an honor. And the only way they could even begin to get to this place is because they had been listening to Jesus all along. If you go back to the, the end of the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, you remember what Jesus says. 
Beginning in verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus says it in a few places. Listen, they hate me, they're going to hate you. If you are with me, you're gonna get my hate. You're gonna continue in suffering. You're going to be afflicted. You're going to have trouble, tribulation, trial in the world because of your association with me. And they understood this. I mean, Peter is suffering this, right? This is what Peter is going through now. And then listen to what Peter says himself in 1 Peter chapter 4. Verse 12, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice, same word, right? But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Peter's like, listen, I had to learn this. This is not just an idea, right? It's not just some principle out there that we, we throw out. We say like, oh, hey, listen, count it all sufferings whenever you're, count it all joy whenever you're suffering, count it, a, count it an honor to be dishonored for Jesus. No, they, he, Peter learned to do this. He experienced this. He's not embarrassed. Can you imagine not being embarrassed? Because we get embarrassed. Most of us get embarrassed at some point or another in our interactions with the world, we get a little uncomfortable, a little embarrassed, a little shy. Usually around the time when they they put a pressure point on us and they want us to say something that we know they're not gonna like. Get a little nervous, a little anxious about it, right? Maybe they're, they're wanting to get you to admit that you actually embrace biblical morality and ethics they want you to say it so they can pounce so they can yell at you so they can dismiss you and we get like ooh, nervous and listen i've felt it i have felt uncomfortable like oh here we go i'm gonna have to say this thing this thing that i actually believe i'm gonna have to say it and they're not gonna like it and my day would have been so much smoother if they just would have left me alone but here it comes and then you have to articulate oftentimes it's around moral issues these days right and we believe that murder is wrong. And that's easy. Who's going to have a problem with that? Until we explain, well, no, we believe the murder, of murder, murder is wrong, right? Taking the life of innocent people, all people, everywhere. That includes people in the womb. It's wrong. It is murder. So we're against it. And half the country will line up with us and be like, yeah, that's a good principle. We agree with you. Half the country hates us for that view. And that's a very simple, it's a very simple uh, example to think of. But you understand, right? We get embarrassed. It gets awkward. It doesn't mean that we always fail, though sometimes we do. We get embarrassed. People want to know, do you really believe this? Do you really believe the Bible? Do you take it seriously? Do you really believe that the Holy Spirit, whatever that is, dwells in you, that Jesus is coming back, that he's literally coming back? Do you believe it's going to be on a white horse? Is it a real white horse? Uh, is it a metaphorical white horse? Like, what's going on? Like, we sometimes get a little embarrassed and we don't want to move forward, but the, the apostles here, they, the, the honor of dishonor, they're, they're not embarrassed. They're actually emboldened by the dishonor. The, the dishonor makes them go, yeah, we're doing this right. I'm doing the right thing. This is what happens. I was just talking to one of our members after the service, and he said, you know, because I can remember preaching the gospel, and I know this guy, right? So he, I, I, I believe this is 100% true. He's like, I've got done sharing the gospel. This guy's always sharing the gospel. Sharing the gospel, and, uh, and he just got, like, decked upside the, upside the head afterwards, punched. And then uh, I think attacked again when he spun around. He's like, you stop talking to me about Jesus. I don't want to hear any more about this. 
And he said, he's like, you know, honestly, the first thing that went into my head was like, holy cow, I just got persecuted. <laughs> like, this is crazy. It actually happened. When does this happen? Like in America, you're just walking around talking to people about Jesus. And, uh, and I know, he, listen, like he wasn't assaulted because he was a jerk. He was yelling at anybody. He was having a conversation, but somebody was triggered. Like the, the disciples were like, man, we, we just suffered for the name of Jesus. They were emboldened. They're not quitting. They weren't hated for their sin. They were hated for their savior. And they knew it. And it was worth it. They knew that the Christian life embraces the dishonor that comes with following Jesus. See, the world is going to be against us. Now, there are, we've, we've already seen this in the book of Acts. Sometimes the world is like, eh, we extend us some kindness and some favor. Right? Sometimes you can have a good reputation with the world. At other times, you don't. But it always devolves. It always ends in opposition because we are two different, radically different kingdoms. See, the world is going to look at those who follow Jesus. They're going to look at any church that follows Jesus and they are going to hate our preaching of the law and the gospel. They are going to be jealous of our joy. They're going to be anxious over our passion. They are going to be suspicious of our good deeds. And I don't really blame them because what they see in the world in terms of religion and, and, uh, and helpful works out there are oftentimes marked by such egregious sins. I don't blame them for being a little sketched out by a people, a movement that is so different. They are going to hate the preaching of the law and the gospel. You see, as Christians, that's what we do. We hold out the Bible, we make this known, right? Whether it's through pastors and, and formal preachers or Christians just interacting with the world. We, we share this book, right? That's preaching. We, we explain this book, then we preach the law and the gospel, which means we, we unpack the commands of God. We help the world to understand this is who God is, this is what he says, this is what he has done, but here's what he's commanded for us to do. Now, our, our aim in doing that is not merely to form a proper society. In fact, as the church that is not our job at all to build a proper society as human beings yes that is our job but as the church it's we're not sharing God's law to merely show them how things are supposed to be we preach the law so that people will see that they haven't met the standard they've broken it all that yes okay you're 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 against murder you say but you are against prohibiting the murder of children in the womb they're not, they're, they're not going to be okay with this. When, when you start to unpack what the Bible says about, well, listen, sexual ethics really limits that interaction, right? That experience between a man and a woman in the context of, of marriage, right? We, we, we hold out these, these commands. We're supposed to be loving. We're supposed to love our neighbors. We're supposed to put away prejudice. We're supposed to uh, forgive other people. Like, think of all the commands of God. And some people will have like, oh, a great deal of affinity for some of them while they hate others. People like to pick and choose. But ultimately they're gonna hate the law that we hold out because even when it is a law that they idealistically agree with, they are still condemned by it because they haven't kept it. They will hate our preaching of the law. They'll call us Puritans, they'll call us uptight. They'll hate our preaching of the gospel too. Because you can't appreciate the gospel until you appreciate the law. They don't like the gospel because the gospel is what? It's grace and mercy. And you know who doesn't like grace and mercy? Proud, arrogant, self-sufficient Americans. That's the most who we're dealing with, right? Well, I don't, 
need no charity. Don't give me charity. Like that's like a built-in thing in a lot of us, right? Like I don't need any help. I'll do it myself. Like, okay, that's great. But uh, yeah, you're right. You, you, yeah. I'm not suggesting that you need help. Uh, I'm suggesting that you are absolutely destitute. You are, you are so far beyond just getting some help. You need a complete rebuild. I'm not suggesting that you need Jesus as a crutch. I'm saying that you're dead and you're in a ditch and you need Jesus to pull you out and make you alive again. Right, so they, the idea of grace and mercy, having to admit that you're not worthy of God's love, that you don't deserve his acceptance or his blessing, and yet he offers it to you anyways. The exclusivity of salvation in Jesus, that there is only one God, that there is only one way, that there is truth and there is error, and that the Bible lays out much of this for us. They're not going to like it. They will hate our preaching of the law and the gospel. And if, if we even get beyond that, or if we don't get to it, they will still have problems with us. They will be jealous of our joy. I'll tell you, I know that sounds like the kind of thing like that a person says, oh, they're just jealous of my joy. Like they're just hating on me because I've got it together. I don't mean it like that. I mean like I can remember being a non-Christian looking into, when I finally met Christians, looking into the lives of these real Christians. Non-Christian, looking at real Christians. These are young people who loved Jesus, read the Bible because they wanted to, because they wanted to read God's word. They went to worship because they wanted to worship the triune God. They followed Jesus when it was uncomfortable uh, because they genuinely believed, right? So, I'm looking in at them and as I'm watching them, what I, one of the things that I see is a joy that is like something I've never seen before. I've never seen it in my life in any other context. There was something that they had that I wanted that I didn't have and I was jealous for it. It annoyed me. Like how do they, how do they where is that coming from? How does it work? They'll see a joy that makes them sing in the prison when they're being tortured. It's a joy that allows them to sing songs when they're being marched into the lion's den. These things happened. They'll be jealous of our joy. They'll be anxious over our passion. They will look at your passion and your commitment, your enthusiasm, and they will make them anxious. The zeal, the commitment, the willingness, the willingness to sacrifice. The, the, I mean, I can remember being suspicious when I would meet these Christians and they would tell me like, no, 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 you don't understand. I have to, I have to go to church. I have to read my Bible. And I'd be like, why? Just don't. Like, what's the point? They're like, no, no, no. I just mean like, I love God so much. I'm compelled to do it. I can't not do it. I've got to do it. It's a little unsettling for, it was unsettling for me. I'm like, well, how do you, where is that coming from? That kind of passion sounds unchecked. Sounds unreasonable. And they'll definitely be suspicious of your good deeds. And this is where, again, I don't blame them because how many people do we put in charge of children or women and those people in positions of authority wind up abusing them? So I get it. They're gonna be suspicious. There's a lot of hypocrisy out there. There's a lot of pretending. And so they look at the church and we're trying to do good things. We're trying to do good works. We're trying to love, serve. We're trying to be generous. So yeah, they're going to be skeptical, suspicious. All of that sets us up to be dishonored by the world, for them to hate us, mock us, malign us, persecute us, mark us out as the out-of-touch weirdos. But the Christian life embraces this. We embrace it. Doesn't mean it's easy. Doesn't mean it's fun. It's not. The apostles came out limping and bleeding. There's nothing fun about that. But they were rejoicing because they were suffering for the name of Christ and it's worth it. You see, this dishonor didn't discourage them. It drove them. This dishonor drives. They didn't slow down. They, they, they understand. Like they, they get it. 
And they get it, they, like, they understand what A.W. Tozer said. To be right with God is often to be in trouble with men. They got it. They knew that the world would persecute them, but they knew that God would preserve them, that the world would bring them pain, that God would cause them to persevere. They were all the more committed because if you just look at verse 42, what does it say? And every day in the temple from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus, the very thing that gets them into trouble. The Christ, the Messiah, the central figure in, in, in Jewish redemptive history, looking forward to the, the one, the, the suffering savior, the, this, this Messiah who would come and deliver God's people and establish a kingdom, and they're saying it's Jesus. They went right back to it. So yes, the Christian life embraces the dishonor that comes with following Jesus. You're gonna have two responses to your witness all the time, two responses, at least two general responses, and maybe it's a, there, there's, a, there's, some, there's a third option in the middle where some people are indifferent, but in general, it's gonna boil down to one or the other. When you are being a witness in the world, people will look at you with either hope or hatred. They will look at you and hear your words by the ministry of the Spirit. They will, they will consider what you are saying and they will hear hope. They will have hope. Or others will look and they will only have hatred for what you say. You are pleasing to some in your message when they understand it and receive it and you are an offense to the rest. In fact, it says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Like people can smell us coming. Right? To one we're a fragrance from death to death and to the other a fragrance from life to life. We are either an aroma that is pleasing or one that is offensive. So, we should all know that dishonor comes with following Jesus. And usually this is when preachers say things like, so, all right, so it's coming. I know it's been relatively peaceful here, but uh, things are ramping up. It's gonna get worse, which it is. And so they go, okay, in light of all of this, in light of this idea, right, the Christian life embraces the dishonor that comes with following Jesus. In light of that, the central charge is buckle up. Get ready, get serious, get your game face on. Get ready to engage and to be fierce. Okay, uh, so yes, you should buckle up because uh, it is going to be an increasingly bumpy ride. Um, and yes, it does take sobriety and there is work to be done, um, but we don't start there. The disciples, the apostles, they're not out there rejoicing while they're limping and bleeding because they had their game face on. They could rejoice in the midst of their limping and bleeding because they knew Jesus, because their faith was grounded in a savior who suffered for them. In other words, yes, buckle up, sure, that's fine. More importantly, look up. Look up to the one who lives and reigns because Jesus, yes, he is one who suffered and died for you. His suffering, not your suffering, his suffering is what saves you, rescues you, justifies you before the eyes of God. So even if the world condemns, who cares? 
His suffering is what redeems us. But he rose from the grave, demonstrating victory over the dishonor and the shame that he experienced publicly by being hung on a cross. He not only rose from the dead for us, he has ascended into heaven and from there he reigns. He reigns over us and he reigns for us and he is coming again. So we look up. We look up with the eager anticipation that Christ is coming again, knowing that Christ is coming to make everything right, to make sure justice is, is meted out perfectly, to, to establish a kingdom that, is, that reigns in an expanding universe. Knowing all of this, we can rejoice because we have not suffered and we will not suffer dishonor for a dead man or for a cause, but for a living savior, for the Christ, for the one who gives us all things. And so we're reading the book of Acts and I want us to see that we will experience much, not all, but we will experience much of what we see in the book of Acts. We will experience some times of, of, of ease and some times of great difficulty and pain. We will experience opposition, turmoil, division. The things that happen in the book of Acts of the church are things that happen all the time. But what we also see happening is Christ reigning in his church, empowering his church, purifying, strengthening his church, reforming his church, using his church, expanding his church by equipping us to be the people he's called us to be. If the Christian life embraces the dishonor that comes with following Jesus, it is only embraced by faith. That's how you embrace the dishonor, by believing that Christ is worthy, not that you're worthy. So we look to him. We look to a savior who saves the unworthy that we might be representatives of him and extend that same grace and mercy to others that they might join us as we suffer dishonor for our honorable savior. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would uh, strengthen us, our minds, our hearts, our ministries, we ask God that you would uh, revive us wherever necessary or wake us up from any apathy or complacency because we certainly do need to be made ready for any persecution, opposition, or dishonor that comes from the world for following you. So make us ready by your grace, Lord. Prepare us. Prepare us for whatever is next by allowing us to dwell in fellowship with you and with one another. In Jesus' name, amen.